0: Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Some of you are wondering why we're still singing Christmas music, right, in the new year. Well, it's Christmastide season, and so uh, we may not realize that tomorrow is Epiphany, which means manifestation. Epiphany is an ancient church celebration. Uh, traditionally recognizes the visit of the Magi and also the baptism of Jesus. And so uh, I love the, the visualization, the symbol, the symbolism that's there because as we prepare to take the bread and the cup, uh, it's an open table for all followers of Jesus so that we are reminded of. Yes, that Christmas story—a baby who came, who came to give his life. Right. As we just finished celebrating Christmas, we're still in that Christmas-tide season. And so but it also reminds ourselves of the baptisms of Jesus. And so we see the bread and the cup, uh, the body, the blood, that this is the, and the baptism for our symbolism is as, as we go into the waters, these are cleansing waters, but we're dying to self. And as we rise up from the waters, these are cleansing waters, we're rising up to life. And so as we partake of this other sacrament, the Lord's Supper, and the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, we remember Jesus' own baptism as well. And remember our own baptism, that we don't belong to ourselves, that this whole gospel is about us decentering ourselves and centering our lives around Jesus. We partake in the bread and the cup as, in a way to join Jesus in his suffering, his self-giving love. We look around the world, we see a lot of suffering. Jesus came to address suffering yourself personally, in our world globally. And you get to be a part as we partake of the bread and the cup. We get to say a new yes to the mission of Jesus. It's a recommitment to what Jesus is doing in our lives that we say, yes, I am signing up for this mission to bring peace, to bring love, to bring your hope, to bring truth in a place that uh, needs his love and truth. So we aren't here on this planet by accident. Our church is celebrating 66 years. We are not Here, in this location, by accident, God has a providential purpose for our church. You know what? He has a providential purpose for your life as well. You're alive in this day and age. You look around and you see so many problems in this world, so much turmoil, so much chaos. You are alive in this time, we believe, because the Bible says that God has placed you here in this time, in this place, with your particular giftedness and particular call in your life to share the love of God to a world in need. So you are here for a purpose. So on, first, on the first Sunday of each month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Unlike our Catholic brothers and sisters, we don't think this is the actual body of Christ or the blood of Christ, but we do think it's more than just symbols. As you, as you look at these symbols, as I preach it for the next several minutes, I want you to imagine that Jesus is present here in a special way. He always says we're two or three are gathered in his name. He is there amongst us. But he also made it a point to say, keep remembering this feast. He wanted us to keep doing this. I wonder why. It's a mystery. But you know what? I'm going to obey. I don't know why exactly, but I'm going to obey because he's given our, his life for us. The bread and the cup are more than just symbols. It actually reminds us as well as even as Luke prayed prophetically, we have a world in crisis, right? A world in crisis. We need to be praying for the nations. We have brothers and sisters in Christ In Iran, in Iraq, in Syria, in Palestine, in Israel, in Africa, in China, we need to be praying as we partake of the bread and cup for all of the body of Christ, all of the suffering. And so we are recommitting ourselves, not just to sit here and to soak up maybe something great in in the comfort of our beautiful town and our, you know, beautiful homes, whatever it would be, but we are co-suffering with those around the world who are suffering And so with that, I wanted to invite us to recommit ourselves in 2020 to be on God's mission, to be the people of God that the world needs to see. And so we don't let the bad news of 2019 discourage us from moving on. We don't let the bad news of the first six days of 2020 discourage us either, right? We know that in Christ, we can embrace the pain. We can face it with great faith because the one who endured suffering for our sake, that's what the bread and the cup are about, that one lives in you, that one whose power rose him from the dead, is in you, that same power, who wants to see you in 2020 living for him, speaking for him, loving for him, listening for him, extending kindness and grace in his name. He's sending us out as representatives in this world. So Jesus is the host of this supper that we're about to partake. He offers himself, he offers his grace, his his life, his truth, and his love. And so I want to say a short prayer as we dig into God's word this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, we simply want to pause and recognize your presence here. And if that's all we get for today, fantastic. You are really here. You really do love us. You really do love this world. You really do know the pain. So Lord, help us to see clearly how you want us to be a part of spreading your love and hope this year. Show us, Lord, as we dig into your word. Thank you in your name. Amen. I can't believe it's 2020, and I can't believe that I made another New Year's resolution in 2020 to do my 2019 resolutions <laughs> that I carried over from 2018. So I'm on three years of resolutions and to remind you as well that today is the 12th day of Christmas, and if you didn't know that, it's a, it's a real thing, and so it's a season called Tide on the church calendar. It began on Christmas Day, 25th, it goes for 12 days, so in our household, that means My daughter, Avery, my daughter, Grayson, they get to open a gift every day starting on Christmas for 12 days. So I was just having a little conversation in the front with my daughter about, did you open another gift today? She's like, there's none left. I'm like, there might be one more when we get home. So we're hoping that mom and dad get their act together. But we 12 days. They love it because every day they get to open something new. Dad loves it because I get to keep the tree up until Valentine's Day. So this is great, (laughs) great for me. Always a procrastinator, right? Which is part of my 2020 things I'm trying to resolute. Okay, anyways. So uh, procrastination, I digress. So Christmas time, this season reminds us that in 2020, this is a season of joy. We're singing these Christmas carols because we don't want the joy to end because it never ends, Right? This is the same way that every Sunday really is an Easter resurrection Sunday. You realize that? Every Sunday we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but every Sunday also is to remember with joy that Christ came. He came with love in his eyes. He came with love in his heart for you and for me. That the king of the universe not only had to come to save us on our planet, he wanted to come because it's an overflow of his love, of his, of his perfection. The overflow of his perfect love actually doesn't mean he hoards it. Perfect love shares. He overflowed to you, to you, to you, to you, to me. And so what we want to do is take a look at this king of the universe who not only appears in the New Testament, who, but who appears from the beginning of the scriptures. Genesis 1, we're going to see Jesus. And all the way through Revelation, we'll see Jesus. But we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at Jesus in the Old Testament, beginning today with looking at the first human. His name is Adam. For the first human in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we're going to see Jesus in the Old Testament, particularly in the life of Adam. And Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, that we're going to look at Jesus as a true and better Adam, so as we read Scripture today, I want us to see three things. We're going to see the beauty of God in Genesis 1. We're going to see the pain of God's love in Genesis 3. And we're going to see, lastly, in 1 Corinthians 15, the hope of God's love. The beauty of God's love, the pain of God's love, the hope of God's love. We're going to be jumping from Genesis 1, 2 to 3 to 1 Corinthians fourteen, around 15, around a couple other places as well. So if you look with me to Genesis 1, 1, the very beginning of your Bible, it says this, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In verse 3, God said, let there be light. Now, if you've been here the last several weeks, I've been here about 120 days, you've heard me say again and again and again, see, there's Jesus. You see, actually, the whole trinity there, the Father, Son, and Spirit, because there in the beginning, God created the heavens. You have God the Father. And then in verse 2, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. There's a Spirit. Well, where's Jesus? Then you go to verse 3 and said, and God said. And remind ourselves from John 1 that Jesus is the Logos, the eternal Word of God. Right there, God speaks God's Word. We see hints of the trinity In Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So the picture I'm trying to give you is that from the very beginning that we see the beauty of God's love, the overflow of the perfection of the love of the Trinity, the God self, overflows into human beings, into the creation of humans. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Word are present at creation. The Trinity imagined in perfect harmony for for all time, right? Cuz time is actually a created thing that God created. So even before time even existed, the Trinity existed in perfection. Father, the eternal Son and and the Spirit of God, perfect loving, harmonious relationship. But out of the overflow of their love, they created us. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't as some other ancient Near East creation stories go, where you're created to be slave labor for the gods. That's a real deal. No, Genesis launches out the beginning of the Hebrew scripture saying, no, God created out of the overflow of his love. He doesn't need you. He wants you. That's a big difference. He doesn't need you. He wants you. That's the beauty of God's love. You Take a look at verse 27. To emphasize this point, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He didn't make just servants to do his bidding. Out of the overflow of his love, he made us in his image, like him, imbued with value and and beauty and goodness. So I wanted you to see from the very beginning the beauty of God's love. First, when God created Adam, the first man, there's beauty there's goodness, there's love. And then secondly, there comes pain. You just have to turn to Genesis 2, and we start seeing the painful story begins to unravel here. Quickly, I'll go over it again. We see in verse uh, 16 of chapter 2, where we see God gives some instructions. The Lord God commanded the man, keep in mind it is the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. God gives Adam, the man, very clear instructions. And then you go to Genesis 3, verse 6 through 8 that we read already. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Oh no. (laughs) Bad news, bad news. Now, God tells Adam and Eve that they must not eat of one tree or they will die. And like how Pastor Tim Keller points out, he asks a good question. Why is this so? You ever wondered why? Why did God ask that? Why did he specifically give this one limitation? Pastor Keller says, no answer is given. Then he says, but do we only obey when we understand God? because if that were the case, then God is a cosmic Santa Claus whom we obey only when we know there are gifts to be had for being good, right? You like this whole Christmas connection I just snuck in right there? <laughs> God's a cosmic Santa Claus. If you, if you demand, you have to understand everything about him in order for you to follow him. Then he's Santa Claus. He's not really your Lord. He's Santa Claus instead. Perhaps though God is saying to humanity something like this, I want you to obey me about the tree just because you love me, just for my sake, not because you understand it, but out of love. You see, he says to obey me about the tree. He says to trust me, and then we failed. We don't trust him. We became self-centered. We want to trust ourselves. Our own intuition says, no, we need to know about the tree. No, we need to, we need to know what's going on. We need to have more information. We become self-centered and we expect others, including God, to revolve around us. So according to Genesis 3, what we see are when our relationship with God unravels, all of our other relationships begin to unravel. You see in in the next section, Adam and Eve are blaming each other, right? It's pointing fingers at each other. It's her fault. It's his fault. It's a snake's fault. Unraveling that just keeps going. It's like a cancer. The sin of the first humans has continued into this day. The self-centeredness where we demand that we have to understand as opposed to trusting a greater being. Self-centeredness, though, alienates us from others, from God, even ourselves, and nothing makes us more miserable than self-absorption. My needs, my wants, my rights, because sin is ultimately self-trust instead of God trusts. I'm going to trust myself. It doesn't have to look, sin is not to look like some egregiously horrible bad thing, right? Sin is self-trust instead of God-trust. It makes it real simple why we need the bread and the cup. I need forget, because I trust myself all the time. (laughs) I think I know better. I think I know myself better than God knows me. That's self-trust instead of God-trust. Do you know there actually exists a real church of Satan? They have a real book and a real kind of order, and they have holidays that they celebrate. Do you know what is the highest holy day for the church of Satan, according to their own writings? You, can you guess what day it is? What What'd you say? Death of Jesus. No, death of Jesus. Okay, what about a holiday we actually celebrate, though, in, like, in this day and age? Easter. Halloween? Easter? Easter? Highest holy day is your birthday. Why? Because it's all about you. That's their highest holy day. Now, I don't want to get an email or a letter... <laughs> I don't need some six-year-old crying telling me, Pastor Tim says we don't get to celebrate my birthday. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just letting you know, isn't it so easy to go from something to be celebratory to something that's all about you, all about your own wisdom, your own sense of, this is my body. Well, this is my ideas, this, or even this, this is my family. No one, no one touches my family. Well, Jesus says he wants to be more important than your family, Jesus says he wants to be more important than your job, more important than your nation. Because you never realize God is Lord of all the nations. We just prayed that this morning. Lord of all the nations. And we can become so self-centered on myself, my family, my job, my team. Sorry, Patriots fans, right? Whatever it is, right? My, 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 my. Jesus says that you lay it all down at the cross. It's the bread and the cup. I lay it all down. Not even about our church right? 66 years. That's amazing. But we exist to be a blessing to the community. We exist to bless others, not to just survive ourselves. The highest holy day of the church of Satan is your birthday. Why? It's all about you. Adam and Eve, the first humans, they made it about them. They didn't trust God in the test of the tree. They failed it. They trusted themselves instead they wanted their, their own wisdom to win out. They didn't understand it, so they made their own decision. The song of God is hard to hear when we're trusting ourselves. God wants us to know his, our well-being is tied up with us centering ourselves around him. And thank God that he doesn't leave us there at the failure of the tree. Even though our selfishness should have repelled him, the good news is that God will not give up. So then we turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to land there for a few minutes. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21, the apostle Paul says this, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Well, what man is he talking about? He's talking about Adam. For as by a man Adam came death, by a man Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I want you to notice one thing, especially you note takers. I want you to notice that Paul in this section actually says that Adam, not Eve, is the source of all sin. I want you to take notes, ladies, okay? Paul, (laughs) Paul, now Now, husbands, if you're getting in a fight with your wife this week, you should probably not mention, like, to bring up as a point to win that, well, Eve's the one who ate the fruit first. You know, that's not going to help you in your argument. So, for some reason, Paul decides to focus on Adam. And there's a particular reason why. Because Paul is making a point. He's saying regardless of gender or class or race, we're all in need of Jesus. And so the Bible says that the good news is that Jesus is a new and better Adam. Paul is trying to make a contrast between the first Adam... And what Paul is saying is the last Adam, Jesus. He's going to do this whole contrast here. So hang out with me for the next several minutes. We're going to see how Paul is going to masterfully put this together. So what do you see as a result of Adam's sin? You take a look at verse 15. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And so we see there is death when it comes through Adam and there's judgment through Adam. And then in verse 16, there is condemnation as well. And we see that from sin, what follows is death, judgment, condemnation. That's Adam. Adam's cancer brought all of that to us. But what's different about Jesus, the last Adam? In place of condemnation, Christ brings justification. That's verse 16. And and, as a result of one sin, we should be condemned, but justification follows many trespasses. So we get this incredible promise from Jesus because Adam brings death and condemnation, but in Christ, we receive the hope of God. We receive the justification of God. We receive the righteousness of God. So Paul is trying to get through to us that if, if Adam's defeat can bring so much cancer, how much more the perfect Adam can bring life? You see the contrast Paul's trying to get at? If through Adam's sin can bring so much death, so much chaos, so much brokenness to you personally and to the planet, how much more can the perfect Adam, Christ, bring you life? Christ is so much stronger than Adam. So his grace his power is what is going to flow through you as you say yes to him. We see all this beauty, all this goodness that comes through Christ. What comes through Adam is contrasted with the last Adam, the new Adam. The first Adam, I want you to notice too, was tested in the garden and he failed. The last Adam, Jesus, he was tested in the garden of Gethsemane, right? What happened there? Jesus said to the father, not my will, but yours be done. Father, I don't get it. I don't understand everything. If you can take this cup away from me, if it's possible, but not my will, but yours be done. The first Adam failed in the garden. The last Adam said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus refused the sin of self-centeredness and instead chose to be a servant to all. See, in the first Adam, he knew he would live if he obeyed God about the tree, but he didn't. The last Adam was also tested by a tree, by the cross, knowing he would be crushed and he would suffer if he obeyed. And this new and better Adam took the cross for the joy set before him, the book of Hebrews says. See, our our self-centeredness should have repelled Jesus from the cross. Oh, they deserve it, Father. Father. But instead, it was joy for him to take the tree and to stay on the tree and to receive and absorb all the brokenness and all of our sin that we might have life because Jesus is a true and better Adam. When we see what Adam's life brought, which was death, but the last Adam who was Christ who brings hope and healing for all who put their trust in him, we cannot help but come to the table with great hope and expectation. God in the Old Testament has always been God's word to us. And Jesus tells us in Luke 24 specifically, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's Jesus telling you and me that the whole Old Testament is about me. So that's why we're going to take the next several weeks to look at glimpses of Jesus throughout the stories of the Old Testament. And here we began with Adam. Tim Keller says this about Jesus in the Old Testament. He says, this is what the new Adam Jesus does for us and for the world. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is a true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation but for acquittal. Jesus is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is a true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God the father taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him. And we can say to God, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Tim Keller continues, Jesus is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So like Jacob, only receiving the wounds of grace to wake us up and to discipline us. Jesus is a true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus, the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Tim Keller continues, Jesus is the true and better Esther, Who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one. Who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is a true and better Jonah who was cast out in the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb. The innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread and then he ends by saying this you see the bible's not really about you it's all about him that the whole old testament it's all about jesus it's not about making your life better or improving your lifestyle it's all about jesus and his rescue mission for this planet and for you personally see jesus is the true and better adam he jesus says what all the other isms cannot do not legalism." not Buddhism, not humanism, not environmentalism, not skepticism, not capitalism, not liberalism, not sentimentalism, not scientism. None of those can do what Jesus does. Mark Deaver makes this comment. He says, yes, all religions really do lead to God, straight to his judgment seat, but only one way gives you a savior. That's this Jesus, the only one who gave his life so that you could have eternal life. The only one who has the authority to forgive your sins. He is what this book is all about. He is what, why we gather is all about. So when we come to the table, we're going to remember, we receive this supper. We receive it with great confidence because Adam's sin is not stronger than the last Adam, Jesus's resurrection power. So some of you come today laden down with guilt Or laden laden down with, oh, again and again, 2020 is going to be the same old cycle. You have the power of God within you in Christ. You have a God who looks upon you with love. You have someone who promises you, if you're in Christ, he will complete what he began. He will finish you. He will carry you through. So we're inviting you again to say yes to him today. Yes to centering your life on him. Yes to having great confidence. Not in your own efforts but on what Christ accomplished on the tree. His sacrificial life, his sacrificial death, his hell-conquering resurrection. So let's push aside our self-centeredness in the power of God today. Let's partake of the bread and of the cup with great confidence, because the lineage of Adam's sin has no power over you. The power of God, the power of his grace, the power of his life in your life, Reigns and reigns forevermore. And so we want to remind you, because as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're inviting you to say yes anew. We're going to invite you to come forward. We'll have a couple stations in the front, a couple stations in the back. We'll have bread. You'll take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup and you'll eat it right then. But would you, as you prepare your hearts and mind, and we'll be singing songs as well, would you see it as you placing your confidence in Christ and not in yourself? Would you see it as you seeing Jesus on the tree who said, not my will, but yours be done as we take that bread and dip it in the cup and we eat it? We're saying, yes. I want to say yes to your mission, Jesus. My life belongs to you. I will decenter myself and say yes to you in 2020 to say yes to your life, wherever you lead us. Yes, yes. if you're leading me, Lord, to pray more. Yes, Lord, if you want me to spend more time in your word. Yes, Lord, if you want me to rearrange some of my relationships and be more centered around you. Maybe your, your workplace is a place, or maybe you see that's your work life, but it's not your Jesus life. And Jesus is inviting you to, to invite him in to your work life and to your family life and to the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, the way we pray for the world. This table, as we come to it as well, reminds us we join believers all around the world in places like Iraq and Iran and in China and in California and in New York and in Australia, right? We're praying for our brothers and sisters that Christ's name would be lifted up, that he would be known as Lord and Savior in your life personally and in this world. You see Jesus as the true and better Adam who came for you, came out of the overflow of his love, even though he chose a path of pain, he wants you to experience his life. And so will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to experience the table of the Lord? King Jesus, we cannot get enough of looking at your word and seeing how much you love us, how much pain you went through to show us your love. And so Lord, we can't even comprehend it, but Lord, would you give us a glimpse, even our eyes are closed, We spend some moments just pondering the reality that, Jesus, you are here with us. Lord, for some of us, it's hard to imagine you that you love us or that you know our pain. Lord, I pray you break through that doubt. We'd be convinced as we sit here, as we stand here, as we we sing, that you are here with us. You're present and that you know our life. You know us better than we know ourselves. And so we can trust you above all things. Lord, thank you for your overflow of love. Lord, thank you that you entered into our pain. And thank you that you invite us into your mission. And so, Lord, we do not take this bread and cup lightly. We recommit ourselves to your mission. You said that one day you are coming back. And until that day, you're asking us to be faithful. So, Lord, give us the power to be faithful this year in 2020. Give us the power to believe you when you say to trust you for our personal lives, for our church, for our planet, Lord. We place our trust in you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.